If you want to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 13 as we continue our study through 2 Kings together, we continue our journey through these historical sections in the Word of God, looking at both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel. And, you know, always important as we go through these historical books, that's what we refer to these books like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. We refer to these as the historical books in the Word of God. But, you know, I have to admit that before I became a follower of Jesus, I didn't really have much interest in history. It just kind of seemed like a, a boring subject to me specifically anyway, trying to keep track of all those things. But, you know, once you come to know the Lord, you realize that history, you can kind of almost break that word apart, and it's really more of a reference to his story. History is his story. It's God's story, how God, from the very beginning of creation, established this world, created mankind, and certainly the events of history unfold. But in the midst of all those things, there's a redemptive plan. God is at work, uh, and God is working even in the midst of life events and rulers rising and rulers falling and empires rising and empires falling and all the way down to the very intimate personal details of every one of our lives. God's kind of trying to write his story throughout our lives and to get us to understand his story which ultimately is the perfect plan of sending his son Jesus Christ for us out of love that we might know him and have a relationship with him but at this time as we're looking at the nation of Israel of course ultimately the nation through which God will send his son the Messiah Jesus Christ we're at a time when the kingdom of Israel the nation is divided the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes in the north, the southern kingdom being the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. Uh, and there are kings reigning upon both of those different territories. And we kind of keep bouncing back and forth between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Sometimes it's kind of hard in the midst of these things not to get a little bit lost. But uh, God certainly has purposes in the midst of these things. We want to see and glean what lessons we can. As we come to chapter 13, once again, we now shift from the southern kingdom of Judah in the south where the king reigns in Jerusalem and we now move uh, once again to the focus of the northern kingdom where a man named Jehoaz is reigning at this time uh, there in the southern or in the northern kingdom of Israel it tells us chapter 13 verse 1 that it was in the 23rd year of Joash the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah. So again, the Bible always gives us these reference points, how we can kind of see where the northern and southern kings kind of overlap. It was in the 23rd year of Joash reigning there in the south that Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel in Samaria and he reigned 17 years so a rather substantial reign again keep in mind we get the privilege every four years to move somebody out uh, if we don't like them in the presidency imagine again we read that these kings reign for 17 years we're going to see tonight if we get that far one king reigns for 41 years imagine that <laughs> Four decades, maybe the better part of your adult life, to always have the same national ruler, and you can't do hardly a whole lot about it. Uh, just continue. Four decades, one king just reigning. So a 17-year reign, Jehoaz had. And unfortunately, imagine this, 17 years of the same king, and verse 2 says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, 
who made Israel sin, and he did not depart from them. And therefore the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, the king of Syria, and in the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. So, uh, you know, as we come to this point here, looking at these things, uh, take notice that it describes Jehoaz as it describes, unfortunately, pretty much all of the kings in the north. Uh, of all the kings that reigned, there was not one good king in the northern part of Israel. All of those kings seemed to just walk in the ways that were evil and do what is ungodly. They were evil rulers. Uh, it tells us here in verse 2, particularly, and this is a common refrain. We keep reading this again and again, that this king did evil in the sight of the Lord, particularly that was following in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. And again, remember, Jeroboam was that first king in northern Israel, and he introduced, remember, idolatry, and he kind of created a hybrid worship system. Uh, he was trying to keep the people from going down to Jerusalem and worshiping there. He was insecure and afraid that he might lose their allegiance. So what he did was he set up some idols there in the northern part of Israel and said, look, these are your gods and you don't need to go down to Jerusalem and to the temple of the Lord and worship according to the prescribed way. Uh, God's into flexibility uh, and, and he'll accommodate you. And, and he kind of created this hybrid system of worship and his own religious holidays and really what he did the most grievous part of his sin is he was basically conveying to people uh, God will accommodate you on your terms in other words you don't need to accommodate your life to the one true and living God God will just accommodate and compromise for you and unfortunately that is a grievous error uh, to give people the impression that God accommodates himself to us rather than us submitting to the holy living and one true God and accommodating ourselves to what he says and his ways you know there is one fact that will never change throughout all of human history uh, there is a God and you're not him I mean, I mean that is just that's a really have you can just get that down <laughs> That fact will never change throughout all of history. Uh, God is secure, and what God says and who God is is not going to change. Uh, he's entitled to that. He's God. Uh, and we should always submit and change ourselves to what God says and God requires and never try and think that somehow we can make God according to our own liking. And that's a great mistake that many people make. They kind of create their own view of God and why yeah, I believe in God and they kind of want to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and some of their own ideas and something from this religion and they kind of create their own system and create their own God when the reality is uh, that is really just the mistake in many ways of what Jeroboam did as he caused the people to enter into this mindset and established a false worship system and caused many people to sin because of that. And unfortunately, here we see uh, that Jehoaz participated in these same things. And notice it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord by following those ways and not departing from them. And again, it's a good reminder to us that it is evil in God's view for us, like Jehoaz, this king, to repeat the patterns of sin that exist rather than departing from them. It says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord by particularly following the ways of Jeroboam and his sin and not departing from them. In other words, his evil in God's sight was he didn't depart from the patterns that he knew was wrong. He just followed in those same practices. And look, for all of us, it's important. 
when we see patterns that are wrong and sinful, it is evil for us in God's sight to not depart from those patterns. To repeat patterns that we know are wrong is foolish and it's self-destructive and it's, and it's an offense to God. When God says, look, this pattern's wrong, depart from it. Don't follow it anymore. We don't want to commit the error of returning to it as Jehoaz did as this king of Israel because verse 3 says that provokes the displeasure of God. It says the anger of the Lord was aroused against the nation and therefore notice God delivered them into the hand of Haziel and then to the next king in Syria, Ben-Hadad his son, all of their days. So again, we see here when God is angry with his people, the nation Israel and displeased with their ways, What does he do? God here allows them to become vulnerable. They become weak and they become defenseless. And as a result of that, they become ruled over by their enemies. And so when God's displeasure was towards the nation, when God's displeasure is toward any nation or if God's displeasure is towards a people, one of the things that God will do to show his displeasure is God will remove freedom and peace and the ability to have some level of stability, God will allow as a way to demonstrate his anger or displeasure for people to become weak and defenseless and vulnerable, and things will begin to conquer and control them. And God can do this in a nation. God can do this among his people. God can do this in an individual life. Sometimes God will give us over to our own rejection of him to allow us to experience what the results of that are and to say, how's that working for you? And in a sense, because the nation was rejecting him, God said, okay, if you don't want me to rule over your nation, you don't want my protection, you don't want my blessing, you don't want my involvement in the nation of Israel, then how about this? I'll pull back my hand and I'll give you what you want. And I'll let you see what it's like when I'm not involved in your nation. I'll let you see what it's like when I'm not involved working on your behalf. And I'll tell you, sometimes one of the most scary and grievous things God can give to a human being is to give them their own way. And for God to just say, okay, you don't want my way, then I'll I'll give you your own way. If you want to try your own way, I'll, I'll let you see what that's like. And here God allowed the nation to experience that and they were being oppressed and conquered by Syria. Their enemy was controlling them during this time. So verse four says, Jehoaz the king as this oppression lasted now through two generations of Syrian kings ruling over them and dominating them. Jehoaz the king of Israel, verse four, it says, pleaded with the Lord and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. And then the Lord, verse 5, gave Israel a deliverer so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. The idea of their dwelling in the tents is a really a sort of a Hebrew euphemism to imply just peace. You know, you, when you dwell in tents, that's indicating relative safety. You dwell in a walled city that's guarded when you're concerned about being attacked. When you're dwelling in tents, that means you're safe and you're secure again. So as the oppression and the control of the enemy, the Syrians, was intense over them and they were kind of ruling over them and oppressing them, notice it says that Jehoaz, at some point, the king, he becomes humbled He's not enjoying the the miserable experience of having rejected God. And so it says, verse 4, he starts to plead with the Lord. And sometimes God will need to bring us to a place where we're so humble that we don't just pray, we actually plead. That's a strong word there, plead 
with the Lord. And so it says he starts to plead with the Lord for no doubt help and deliverance. And again, do you see the mercy of God in verse four? It says the Lord listened to him. The Lord didn't get stubborn. The Lord isn't like a lot of people are. Well, I mean, you created your own mess. So just sorry. I mean, you, the Lord listened to him. And when somebody humbles themselves before God and pleads for God's help, God will always listen. He'll always listen. And it doesn't matter how foolish you've been in your ways or how much rejection or rebellion. When a heart becomes humble before God and pleads, God, I'm in a mess. I'm completely out of control and I'm being oppressed and, and, and an enemy is ruling over my life and I don't know how to get out from under this. If you plead with the Lord, the Lord will listen. And the Lord not only will listen, the Lord will lovingly help because it says there in verse five, what did the Lord do? It says the Lord gave Israel a deliverer so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians and again began to dwell in a peaceful condition once again. So notice the Lord is always willing to send help and send deliverance if we cry out for it. It says the Lord sent them a deliverer. Now we're not told who that is or exactly how it happened, but the Bible just records he gave them a deliverer so that they might escape from under the control of the enemy. And again, I look at that and I think what a beautiful picture because ultimately that is the, the uh, you know, evidence of what God will ultimately do and does do for us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came as God's deliverer to deliver us from the oppression and the control of the enemy of our souls, spiritually the devil. You know, we sin, we rebel against God and we reject God's rule and authority over our life. And because of that, we make ourselves vulnerable in our sin and our rejection of God, whether consciously or unconsciously. And as a result of that, that gives enemy access, the devil to come in and to rule over our life and to become an oppressor. And, and yet God in his love doesn't want us to be in that condition. And so God sent to us a deliverer and we know who that deliverer is. That was Jesus. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and to set us free, to redeem us, to buy us back from the slavery and bondage we're in because of sin. And and God's deliverer has been sent for us and sent for the very reason right there in the same way this deliverer was sent by God to help them escape from under the hand, the control of the enemy. That's what Jesus came to deliver us from. The hand, the control of the devil. The devil doesn't have to have control over anybody's life. God sent Jesus so that we can escape from that. And you know what? That that is what we all need in our lives. We need a way of escape. And Jesus is the way of escape because he's the deliverer and the savior. But what we need to do is realize that he is who he is and that we need his deliverance and that we can't escape ourselves. See, the great human mistake is think, well, I can get out of this. I can work myself out of this. I can escape this struggle with sin. I can escape this thing that's ruling over my life. I can escape this condition that I'm in. I hate to break it to you. No, you can't. No, you can't because the power of sin is strong. And we don't have the ability to escape anything on our own. We need to be delivered. We need to be saved. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. And Jesus is a great deliverer and has helped certainly many of us in this room tonight escape and can help anyone who needs and desires him to to escape from anything in their life condition. Well, verse six, this is a sad testament here. It says, nevertheless, though God did this for them graciously, look how they respond to God's graciousness. 
Nevertheless, they did not depart. Can you imagine that? From the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin, but walked in them and the wooden images also remained in Samaria. So God's kindness, the Bible says, is intended to lead men to repentance. So God's kind to us, he's gracious to us, but yet sadly, even though God is so gracious and at times he'll intervene, right, he he bails us out. I mean, who's not been in that foxhole, you know, prayer kind of praying, Lord, if you just get me out of this, Lord, if you just get me out of this, listen, I've been in prisons and sat with people who are sitting in prison. So, well, if the Lord just gets me, when the Lord gets me out of here and and I don't want to diminish the, 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 credibility at times of prison conversions and jailhouse conversions and deathbed people who are just really sick and if God heals me and gets me out then I'm going to serve him forever but I hate to tell you more often than not I've seen that happen and God mercifully graciously helps and then people just spurn God and they just turn around and they just spurn God and spurn his kindness and they kind of just disregard the kind and gracious thing God has done for them. And here the nation does that. Though God was so kind to them and delivered them, nevertheless, they didn't depart from their sins. They kept persisting in those same things. And again, uh, that's kind of a very sad thing, the response of the people. Sometimes people will persist in sin and spurn God's kindness. And let me just say, boy, I think that's kind of like the one of the high points of disrespect towards God. I mean, when God's nice enough and kind enough to step in and spare and deliver and save you and me from something, and then we just go back to the same thing again, and we kind of spurn God's ways, I mean, boy, that's kind of a very dishonorable thing. And yet, you know, nations do this, and people do this, and here this this is what Israel did. They didn't depart from the sins. Verse 7, so again, the Lord left the army of Jehoaz, only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots and 10,000 foot soldiers for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust of the threshing. So again, God just allowed them to continue to be defeated and their ranks of their military personnel to just be reduced. It says uh, here the description of what they were reduced down to, just 50 horsemen and 10 chariots. And again, we might look at that, but understand from an ancient army perspective, I mean, that that's a diminishing of your military personnel that's not even an army from an ancient perspective that's like a police force i mean that, that, that's, that's nothing in comparison to what they should have from a military standpoint to defend themselves so again god just let them be further reduced because of their rejection of him verse six now the rest of the acts of jehoahaz and all that he did in his might are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of israel say so jehoahaz rested with his father's And they buried him in Samaria, and then Joash, his son, reigned in his place. Verse 10, and in the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, which again is kind of another variant of Joash. You're going to see the name sort of being used interchangeably. And the hard part is sometimes you have the same name going on in the north and in the south here. It's kind of like Jim in the north and Jim in the south. You know, which which one are we talking about here? You got to pay attention. The key is always to take note of verse 10. He became king over Israel and Samaria and he reigned 16 years. So what we always want to pay attention to is the person's name, Jehoash, who was the king over Israel. So that puts us in the north and that he reigned for 16 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, doesn't this sound familiar? Watch this. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam 
the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but walked in them. Now, the rest of the acts of Joash and all he did, his might, which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers and Jeroboam sat on his throne and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now, verse 10 to 13 kind of gives us a, a almost a summary statement of the life as a whole of this next man we're looking at, Joash, king over Israel in the north. Uh, the text is actually going to go on then to give us some description of some events that happened during his life. So it's almost kind of somewhat, you know, uh, parenthetical in the sense that, well, that's kind of strange. It just said that he died and he was buried with his fathers and now it's talking about him again. Well, basically the Bible gives kind of this full synopsis of his life and just the general picture of how the general premise of his life is sadly, as you see there, uh, he basically just persisted in the same unhealthy patterns of his father who reigned before him. You have similar descriptions of how basically instead of learning from the mistakes of his father and breaking the cycle and living in different patterns, this man here, Joash, he basically just repeated the same unhealthy and sinful patterns that were observed and it just translated from one generation to the next. You know, it's sad, but oftentimes, do you not notice in society that tends to be the case a lot? A lot of times with unhealthy and sinful patterns, it seems that one generation just learns and observes from a father figure or from their parents, and then they just repeat the same cycles in their, in their life of unhealthy and sinful patterns. And yet God wants something different. God wants to break cycles. But unfortunately, Joash in many ways just kind of repeated the same things of his own father. Well, verse 14, we get this interesting insight. Now we come back to Elisha the prophet. Notice verse 14. It says, Elisha had become sick of the, or with the illness of which he would die. So we haven't heard much about Elisha the prophet in quite a while, but what's interesting is that the Holy Spirit wants us to see very clearly of all people we could think of, it says Elisha the prophet here, notice, becomes sick with the illness of which he would then die from. Now, again, remember what Elisha the prophet is a representative of. We've looked at a lot of his life and ministry in the earlier chapters together as we've been studying through. Second to Jesus Christ himself in the New Testament, there are more biblical recorded references to the miraculous power of God happening through Elisha the prophet second to Jesus himself in the New Testament. So Elisha the prophet was known for what? Miracles and power. I mean, this guy was involved in many miracles, God working through his life. He was a godly man. He heard from the Lord. He was involved in people being raised back from the dead. And yet now the Bible gives us this reference to his life. Here is now Elisha. He's probably somewhere around 80 years old. He's about 50 years or so into ministry and the Bible says of him, he becomes sick with the illness whereby he would die from. Now, this to me just is almost God's very subtle but direct way of saying, look, it does not matter how godly someone is, how much of the power of God is at work in their life and through their life. It does not make them immune to sickness and to death. 
And this is very important because in a lot of ways there is a thought and a mindset that does exist, it seems, among the church of, you know, kind of positive, you know, confession and the word faith movement where the implication is given by those teachings that if you are godly and you have enough faith and there's not sin in your life, then you won't get sick and nothing wrong will ever happen to you. That to be spiritual is to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. And that's an indication in some ways of the spirituality from what is conveyed in that. And basically, it is sadly to me taught to many people that if you have sickness in your life or you're struggling with your health, well, that means you have a lack of faith or there's some sin in your life and you just need to repent of it because if you had enough faith or you dealt with your sin, then, then, then God would heal you and you wouldn't be sick. Well, look, here's Elisha the prophet. This guy was raising other people from the dead and he got sick and he died. It happened. He was a godly man. He walked in and orchestrated the power of God's miraculous works, but yet God let him get sick of something, and the last thing he got sick of was what he died from. And you know what? For all of us, it does not in any way indicate your physical condition, your spiritual condition. Please don't ever believe that. And please don't ever let anyone make you believe that. Paul the Apostle who walked in the power and miraculous works of healing and at times was used by the Lord to heal people. Paul himself had an affliction in his flesh that the Lord didn't take away from him. And yet he would be used by the Lord to heal others. But Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord three times and the Lord said, Paul, my grace is going to be sufficient for you and my power will be perfected in that weakness. And Paul, that health issue, it's going to remain in your life so that you experience my grace and you'll do better with that health issue. But again, was Paul out of the will of God? Of course not. Paul was in the will of God, but yet he had a health issue. And again, for most of us, honestly, in this room, if we're not raptured by Jesus prematurely and taken to heaven, then what's probably going to happen is you're going to die from the last thing you get sick of. Right? You get sick of stuff. God's merciful. He helps you get better. You recover. You heal. And then what's going to happen is you're going to get sick one last time with something, and then you're going to die. And you're going to go into the presence of the Lord. And here, Elisha, I love of all people, again, God didn't have to give us this insight, but it's almost as if God, again, wanting us to be sound in our understanding of theology, he picks Elisha. And he could have just said Elisha died, but God wants us to know he became sick with the illness of which he would die. And that was how he passed. Some illness caused him to ultimately lose his life in the latter stages of his years. Well, look what happens right before he dies, a little bit more power and effective ministry. It says, then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to visit him, apparently knowing he had a terminal illness and the king wanted to pay respect to him. Elisha had done a lot to help the nation militarily and giving counsel to the kings so often during his ministry. So Joash, knowing he has a terminal illness, goes down to visit the prophet of God. And it says he wept over his face and said, oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen. Now, uh, that's a great sign of respect, not only to refer to him as father, but also the fact that he says the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Again, that was a statement that was a reference to to the military and military strength. And no doubt what the king is conveying to Elisha is Elisha 
It's you and your godly counsel and your prayers and the help that you've given to us. It's you and Yahweh God who has been the source of our strength militarily. It's not how many chariots or how strong our horses are. He's saying to him, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen, he's implying the source and strength of our military has been you. And and if you die, what are we going to do? We're going to be utterly defeated. Remember, Elisha was the one, if you remember, earlier on we read about where uh, continuously there would be, uh, you know, attacks and victory taking place. And every time the enemy would line up their position, his plans would be thwarted. Hey, there's a traitor among us. I mean, what's going on? How's everybody, you know, who's among us a traitor? And they're always telling where our military position is. They said, no, 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 king, what you don't know is Elisha the prophet He knows what you tell your wife in your bedchamber. He hears everything you say. And so as soon as you say, hey, let's strategically set up a post and launch an attack from there. And he would keep receiving revelation from the Lord and tipping off in such a way by giving military insight. And he would bring great assistance. Again, this godly prophet of God was very valuable to the nation. This man of God was very helpful to kings and political leaders and military leaders and i said before you know we need god's people in all realms and spheres of influence he was a great asset and the king here is he's he's greatly uh you know uh, sad and, and somewhat nervous that elisha is about to pass now but verse 15 elisha wants to encourage him even though he's going to die, Elisha said to him, as he's in this condition of terminal illness, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on and then Elisha put his hands on the king hands. Again, an indication of almost as if how, you know, if a child was trying to learn how to do archery and the father would come along and he would put his hands on top of his child's hands to help and to assist. And so in a sense, the child is dependent upon the the, the help and the, the guidance of his father and even the strength of his father, perhaps to pull back the bow because he's not strong enough. This is the picture here of dependence as he put his hands this you know weak and and elderly prophet puts his hands on top of the king's hands as a representation of the hands of god that you need to depend upon god and it will be by god's strength and by god's guidance as he puts his hands on his hands and then he tells him verse 17 open the east window and he opened it and then elisha said shoot and he shot and he said the arrow of the lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from syria for you must strike the syrians at aphek until you have destroyed them so notice this was basically just it was symbolism the prophet here was giving to uh, the king an assurance of god's promise of victory against the syrians it didn't seem it would be possible but he's saying listen with god's strength helping you militarily with God being the one to guide you as you fire arrows and all that you do, as God's guiding you and strengthening you, helping you, he says, this is the Lord's deliverance. He's going to give you deliverance. So as he shoots this arrow out the window, it says there that he opens the window towards the east. That was the direction where the Syrians was. And to, to launch an arrow out was basically sort of a symbolic declaration of war. You know, if if you had an enemy across a field and you launched an arrow, and that was sort of a declaration, a provocation that you want to engage in battle. 
So this symbolic experience is happening here. And really what's happening is God's giving his promise through Elisha to the king that he will succeed, that victory can be won, and that God was going to help him to, to succeed in this battle. So look what happens, verse 18. Then he said to him, Elisha says to the king, take now the arrows. So he took them. Now, that's probably all the arrows. Perhaps he still has in his you know, quiver in, in the back or wherever he's holding his quiver of arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. Now, whether that meant to strike the ground with the arrows, literally in his hand, or maybe it meant to take out each arrow that was in his quiver, and it, perhaps it was a reference to, to launching every single arrow he had so that they would strike the ground. Uh, we're not 100% certain, but verse 18 says that he, the king of Israel strike the ground. So he struck the ground, notice three times, key word, and he stopped. Verse 19, and then the man of God was angry. There was a righteous indignation that Elisha felt. And he said to him, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. So notice what happens here. God promises victory to him and wants him to believe in this victory and to believe it's going to be a complete and a thorough victory. And he then gives him after that promise, this instruction, he says, now strike the ground. And it's almost the idea is in response, demonstrate your confidence in what God's just said. Demonstrate that you believe that God's going to do what he said. So strike the ground, whether that's strike the ground with the arrows in his hand or whether that means, I said, to just pull out every single arrow and strike the ground with every one. But it says he only does it three times or he only fires, let's say, three of his six arrows. Sort of half-heartedness and incomplete uh, you know, response and kind of maybe a, a little bit of a, an attitude of, of unbelief and, and going so far. But then it says that he stops and the prophet of God gets angry with him. And he says, why did you stop at three? Now you're only going to have three victories. And he says, the Lord would have given you twice the amount of victory. God would have done twice as much if you hadn't stopped. And if you had done what God told you to do thoroughly and completely. And, you know, this is a, a good reminder to all of us to some degree. Whenever God asks us to do something, you know what we should do? Do it thoroughly. Believe God wholeheartedly. Because we have no idea. Again, uh, why did God tell him to do this? He didn't have all the information, but look, we don't always have all the information when God tells us to do something, but if God tells you to do something, you have no idea what the full implications of that may be. So do it well. Do it thoroughly. Do it in complete faith and obedience and don't do it half-heartedly. Don't go half-hearted. Fully believe in confidence in what God has told you to do and do it to the fullest extent. Be careful of half-heartedness. Be careful of unbelief because it can hinder and rob you from experiencing the fullness of God's best. I don't know about you, but perhaps the mistake here is sort of what's said there, doing what God told him to do. But it seems, verse 18, the problem was that last word that he stopped. That he did what God told him to do. He started to strike the ground three times, but then he stopped. And sometimes one of the mistakes we can make is we start doing what God tells us to do or we're doing what God tells us to do, but then for whatever reason, we stop. 
And God didn't tell us to stop. And until God tells us to stop, you keep going. If God says do something, you don't stop doing it until God tells you to stop doing it. If God tells you to start, you start and you keep going until God clearly says, now stop doing that. And that's important. Perhaps the problem was that he actually stopped something God told him to do. And it's wise for us to keep at things and not stop until God tells us to so that we don't hear like this king end up missing something that God would have done or God could have done had we continued and persisted and been thorough and kept at something unless God tells us to stop. I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to hear those words in the text there that the the king heard something along the lines of, I would have, Tony, or I could have, or but now only I'm going to do this. I would have done this. I could have done all of that, but now... It's only going to be this. In a sense, now you've settled for less than God's best or you've settled for half of what God could have done or some part. And instead of experiencing maybe the fullness of of a victory over something, uh, there's only a partial victory. Yeah, I want full victory. I want completely to be able to conquer something. If God wants me to conquer some sin or struggle in my life, I don't want to go halfway there. I want full victory. I want complete victory. I, I don't, if the Lord says, if the sun sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And there's something in your life that's controlling or dominating or oppressing you, something in your life that God doesn't want ruling over you. And the Lord says, I will give you victory. I can deliver you from that. Look, I don't want just deliverance where I only do it three times a month. I don't want to do it at all anymore. I don't want to do it ever again. And I believe that God has the power to do that. I don't want to be someone who says, well, yeah, I mean, it's a lot better now. Now I only do it six times a year. No, I want to say, since Jesus set me free, I've never done it again. There's been deliverance. There's been power because I believe the Lord set me free from that. And I'm going to continue to walk in that victory, believing in the fullness. Listen, and part of that is is according to perhaps sometimes even the response of our faith. Jesus said, as your faith be it unto you. According to your faith, do we really believe in the power of Jesus' deliverance and his victory and his ability to do those things for us? I believe the Lord wants us to. You know, perhaps you're here tonight and the Lord wants to deliver you, set you free from something, give you victory over something in your life. Believe him for it. Believe him for it and act upon it and trust that he has the power to do that and cooperate with him certainly in the process but believe in his power to guide and to give the strength to bring about the victory in whatever it may be and don't don't give up short or and if the lord tells you to do something then you know what keep doing it and don't stop never stop until the lord tells you to stop those are the times to cease and here there's a great lesson in this picture happening elisha here this one more time giving great counsel to help this king Well, verse 20, look what happens. Then Elisha dies. So ultimately, this was sort of his last act to give this counsel. Elisha now dies and they buried him. And watch this story. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was when they were burying a man. So the one day they're burying this random person, a funeral procession. 
And suddenly they spied a band of raiders heading towards them. Oh no, here come the, the Moabites, here come a band of raiders, what should we do? So they hurry up and they just put the man inside the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down, his body touched the bones of Elisha and he revived and stood on his feet. Now that would wig you out, wouldn't it? I mean, here, oh my goodness, here come the Moabites, just finish up the funeral quick. Say in Jesus' name, amen. Well, they didn't say that yet, I guess. But, you know, close up the prayer. Put him in the tomb. And they, they just, just, here's a tomb. They drop him in the tomb. And as soon as his body goes in, they put him in and he pops back out. Hey, guys, how you doing? And he just comes right back to life and he revives and his body resuscitates and he comes back alive. Now, is the Bible trying to give to us an implication that somehow there's something special about Elisha and, and there's some magical powers that his bones had in some ways? Absolutely not. That's unscriptural and it's a, a complete misconstruing of what the text is trying to convey there. I think what God is clearly conveying is very simply this, is God was demonstrating in that unique, miraculous act the reality that Elisha, my servant, is dead. But I'm still alive. And Elisha is dead, but the power was never really coming from Elisha anyway. It was my power. I was just using Elisha, like at one point prior to that, I was using Elijah. And at one point prior to that, I was using Moses and so on and so forth. And that it's not about the vessel. It's about the God and the power of God behind that vessel. And God still has the power to work mightily despite the change in season. When Elisha died, that was a major change for them. That was the end of a season. That was a change of circumstances. But God's saying, yes, the season has changed. The circumstances are different. But I haven't changed. I'm still alive and I still have the power to work apart from the fact that Elisha is no longer around because God's power is not restricted by any person or by any people or any set circumstance. Nothing limits God's work. And we need to remember that because sometimes we attach God's power and God's work to a, a situation or a season, or maybe even a particular person, or a ministry or something, we think, oh man, just that was, wow, God was working so powerful, and remember that, and God used to work so powerful, and I wonder sometimes if what God's saying, right, the problem is, is you're in touch with what's dead and gone, instead of being in touch with the living God who's wanting to work himself today. And sometimes we wrongly attach God's power and we think, well, well, it was only in that situation God could do something powerful, only with that person. And when God's saying, you're missing the point here. And, and, and here God's saying, I'm still alive and I'm still powerful. And God does this incredible miracle as this man comes back to life and is revived, no doubt to encourage them to keep believing in the power of Yahweh God. Well, verse 22 says, And Haziel, the king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But notice, the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence. So God was merciful to the people, even though they continued to sort of reject God and their idolatry. And, and though the king of Syria kept oppressing them, the Lord kept being kind and compassionate to them. And here's the consequence of what we read earlier, verse 24. Now Hazael, the king of Syria, died, and then Ben-Hadad, his son, as we read, reigned in his place. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, 
recaptured from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities which he had taken from the hand of Jehoaz, his father, by war. Here's that unfolding of what God said. Three times, Joash defeated him and recaptured the city of Israel. So just like Elisha the prophet declared when he said, you should have struck the ground five or six times, but now you only strike Syria three times. Now the word of the Lord comes to pass. Because it says there that King Jehoaz goes out and he has victory on three different occasions. He recaptures territory and he regains ground that was taken away from them in the war against the Syrians. And it says three times he defeats, but the implication there is exactly what God said. It wasn't a complete deliverance. It wasn't a complete victory. The implication there is, is a missed opportunity that they passed by a chance to have complete victory and to experience the fullness of God's best for them. And what a sad thing. And why did they miss the fullness of God's best? And it was God's best. God wanted to give them complete victory again. It was because of unbelief. Despite what they were doing, verse 23 says that the Lord was gracious and compassionate that he didn't want to forsake them, that he didn't want to destroy them or cast them off forever. It was no lack on God's part. God wanted to be gracious and kind and compassionate. God didn't want to destroy. God wanted to bless the nation of Israel. Despite their many mistakes and failures, the only reason they missed out on God's best was because of their own unbelief towards the Lord. Because they didn't believe what the Lord wanted to do for them and they didn't receive it for themselves. And look, you know what? For all of us, let us never think if we don't experience God's best that somehow the mistake's on God's end. You know, God's not holding back. God's not restrictive. You know, God's not in some way set, you know, keeping a limit on. You know, what, what God wants to be compassionate and helpful and gracious. Typically, the error is on our end. Is There's a lack of belief in our heart there's a lack of trust and confidence in the fact that the lord is gracious and that he is compassionate and 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 through our unbelief we miss the experiences that maybe the lord wants to bring us into in greater and deeper ways you know when jesus went on his public ministry remember it says that when he went to his own hometown where he was very well known in the flesh as he grew up there in nazareth it says that jesus couldn't do many miracles in his own hometown because of unbelief in other words, it was their unbelief and their unwillingness to trust Jesus that in some ways their unbelief hindered all that he wanted to do for them. And we don't ever want to be in that place. We want to have confidence and believe that the Lord is wanting to and has the power to do anything possible in all of our lives because our faith is what the Lord loves to reward. And look, the same applies all the way down to the experience of salvation itself. The only reason somebody does not go to heaven is because they don't want to go to heaven. The only reason somebody doesn't receive the forgiveness of their sins is because they don't want their sins forgiven. Because the Bible says that Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that anyone who comes to the Lord, he'll in no ways cast out. That it's a free gift and that Jesus willingly, freely offers the forgiveness of sins and the assurance of eternal life as a gift to every person. Some people choose to humble themselves and believe that. 
Some people say, you know what? I humbly real. I, I am a sinner and I make mistakes and I have guilt in my life and, and I'm thankful that God loved me enough that though I couldn't escape myself and I couldn't fix myself, that Jesus came and he died on the cross for my sins and he was punished for me and he rose again from the dead and he's alive and he can save me. And I believe that. And you know what? I'm going to receive that for myself. I, that's, you mean that's free? Free? Nothing's free, right? Free? And, and they believe it and they humbly receive it and they experience the compassion and grace and forgiveness of the Lord for their sin and they experience the hope and the assurance of eternal life and Jesus comes into their life and makes them a new person and they experience relationship with God. And then others say, I, I just can't believe that. I just, I, I won't believe that. I, and again, it's a choice to believe. Others just say, that, no, I just, I, no, I just, I can't believe that. And so you can't believe that. You won't believe that. You're choosing to exercise your free will to not believe that. And so don't be angry at God if he gives you what you want, which is you don't want to go to heaven, you don't want your sins forgiven, and you don't want to know Jesus. So there's only one other option. Your soul is eternal. It has to depart somewhere, right? And those who depart into hell and damnation and eternal torment are only there because they miss God's best because they don't want God's best. And so they take the only other option. What a wonderful thing that the Lord so graciously, compassionately provides for us and supplies and makes things available. And all he asks of us is, would you believe it? Would you receive it? I mean, how free and how gracious the Lord is. Why don't we stand together?